come for musicals. <laughs> um, I think you've um, saved me the necessity of giving Peter an introduction. Uh, I think nothing more needs to be said. It's perfectly obvious that you all share the admiration that I have and subsequent generations of uh, the public and directors have had for Peter, who is a remarkable man, a remarkable director, and in my case, I'm lucky enough to say a remarkable friend. Wow. Um, now before we start talking about Peter's book, Tip of the Tongue, which will be on sale in the bookshop, and Peter will be signing copies afterwards, uh, <laughs> which probably should be sold in, uh, in conjunction with um, Anthony Burgess's book, um, uh, A Mouthful of Breath, Tip of the Tongue and A Mouthful of Breath. Um, it, it's, uh, uh, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, but I just wanted to take a couple of minutes to remember Peter Hall, who died a couple of days ago after a very, very long illness. Mm -hmm. um, and I wouldn't be sitting here today if it hadn't been for Peter Hall. I was Peter Hall's protege. I became the director of the National Theatre because, um, essentially because Peter wanted to, me to be and I have an infinite amount to be grateful for him, uh, to him for. Um, he was a remarkable man, um, extraordinary uh, visionary. And Peter, I'd love to hear your, a few memories of, of Peter, perhaps from, from the early days at the ROC. I think already I've read the marvelous tributes paid to him, and every one of them suggests that he was somebody of such multiple talents and capacities, going from that deep, natural, warm friendliness to something very, very clear, and which enabled him to see what was possible, what was lacking, and to have the sharp intelligence to see if that's lacking and it's up to us to do something, this and this and this and this are what we have to mobilize. And he really combined those things of a perfectly, with a diplomat too, a political sense of, with all this, knowing the resistance of, which must be the same at this very moment, governors, governing bodies, what a nightmare to deal with, <laughs> committees, and then after that, the Arts Council going to the government, saying this is impossible if you don't give us more money, and knowing all the techniques, the person you must take out to lunch, not to go in the restaurant where you might see the other one sitting <laughs> jealous that it's in all those were at his fingertips. He was and also, my experience, a very good producer. And he was a very good director. He was a very good director, but something that hasn't been mentioned in the many... Um, uh, obituaries of him was how acute he was at helping other people's work oh, to be yes. better. Oh yes. And that is part of the real role of the director of a big theatre anywhere, is both a director in his own right to understand all the 
specifics and a producer in the big old-fashioned sense of the man who's the top boss and who can see at a run-through what's lacking and know exactly how to help rather than somebody sitting there as I once had the misfortune to do it on show on Broadway and the first run-through you could see them chewing their nails and think, my God, is it going to be a hit? Will I get my money back? <laughs> you never saw that with Peter. He would see, ah, I think that, that could be helped if. Always positive. Yes. Now, I think that the only thing I'd say where we disagreed, because, you know, he asked me to join him very early on. I was five years younger than he was. I'd begun to work. He had just come up from Cambridge very brilliant young man. It was a whole generation from Cambridge, which was much, much regarded at the time. And when he got this job here, he asked me, and at Stratford rather, if I would, with Michel Saint-Denis, who was a distinguished French teacher and director of the time, who'd done Oedipus with Olivier, which was something that was a very important event for the old Vic in those days, the first national theater. Peter came to us and said, I would like not to work alone, but have a little triumvirate. So will you join me? And it was, I was very alarmed because I dreaded being part of administration, but it was absolutely thrilling. We had regular meetings. He'd tell us everything that was going on would ask our advice, but everything to do with administration, he just took on himself beautifully so we could have this very luxurious position of helping as we could and not having any of that thing that he very, very naturally took on his shoulders. Now, I can only say that I can only tell if we're talking about him the one area where we weren't in agreement, which leads directly into what... The, we're saying in this book, which is that he was of a new school from Cambridge, very intelligent school of a very intelligent young don called Dady Rylands. And they all did a very scrupulous analysis on all the plays that they were working on of the form to a point where understanding the form, understanding the structure, was for them the most important thing. And he carried that into his work where he would insist, first rehearsal of Shakespeare, first of all, you work out the nature of verse, you have to study how verse goes, where the stresses go, you have to know all this before you dare go into it. My approach, which I say in the book, was the exact opposite that meaning, which something you can discover only by feeling, intuition, all sorts of mysterious things, has to come form, and then the form is what comes much later on, perhaps what comes last, and it is there to be the vehicle that carries meaning. And there we didn't agree. We, we didn't that agree that either. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> which side are you on? Um, I didn't agree with Peter at that. all. And Peter used to say, no, verse speaking is like jazz. And I said, well, in that case, why are you treating it like Gilbert and Sullivan? Yes. But, 
Um, but, uh, Peter, uh, I'd love to talk no, about... This you. is very important, what we may say later, when you're, it's like jazz. In jazz, rhythm, of course, is absolutely there. You can't imagine jazz without a rhythm. But the only image I know is surfing on the waves. But to surf on the waves, you follow the waves, you go with them, but you're quite free. And it's the same thing. Jazz floats freely and plays it. It's absolutely respectful, deep down, observing the rhythms, but it's never thinking rhythm first. It's never first. on the beat. It's, no, it's, it's before the beat or, or after. after the beat. And it's the same I found with opera. I find today the most destructive thing. I hope that, that there are some music teachers here who, who I can say the worst thing that you do in colleges is to start with the metronome. This is a nightmare <laughs> for children. I know when I started learning the piano, thank God I didn't have a teacher who would say, count one, two, three, and not a bit of it. You first feel the melody, you feel what it's all about, and then gradually, gradually you feel that it is enhanced if you are closer and closer to the rhythm, but you're not the slave to form. You, you're fascinating your book. Um, what the, is the subtitle? The, the subtitle is reflection, <laughs> Reflections on Language and Meaning. There we are, yes. Uh, so <laughs> I'm very keen to get Peter to reflect a little more about um, language. You tell a story uh, early on. You take as your um, proposition to examine language and meaning the difference between speaking French and speaking English. And I found it absolutely fascinating. You have an assertion that um, the French, that the English speak words and the French speak thoughts. Yes. And you tell a story about you recently being in a shop in Paris <laughs> and asking for something and the shop assistant looking a bit bewildered and then replying to you in English. Yeah, and uh, you've been living for... 20 years, 30 years. 30 in years in, yes. in Paris. How do you account for that, Peter? Because speaking in an English way, I don't articulate in the same way as the French. And I rely on them to guess if I say something like to have a new... Est-ce que vous avez le Figaro? I think that's very French, just to roll it off. But for them, that is fine. But it's with an English accent, which I can't get rid of. So hearing this awful thing for them, the sound of English on top of it... Have you, have you tried to get rid of it? It's Brexit in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but no, do you, no. is it a matter of body language? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not aware of it. People tell me. But do ah. you, when you speak French, do you use your body in a, in a non-English way? Do no. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't look at myself, but as far as I know, for a French person, and I can't look with French eyes, this is obviously an Englishman. But um, you, you touch on something in the French, in the English language, mm -hmm. that you say English has, the English as a people are mystical. 
have a, have a, mm. um, are attracted to the mystical, which I found surprising, uh, as opposed to the, the French attracted to the abstract and the rational. reasonable, the rational. rational. Now that is what has really changed everything. This poor fellow Descartes, who really changed the a whole way that a people was going, and he's there to this day. This strict logic, while in English there's this different things and one sees between the north and the south and towards Wales and towards Ireland. It's so much is feeling the echoes and the overtones that there are feeding a word. And I mean that comes into everyday jargon. There's so much jargon that we use uh, without hesitation. The French would say, just a moment, has that word been accepted as part of our language? <laughs> well, I, I, was in, uh, I was doing a, a production of yeah. Massenet's opera Verter oh, yeah. with a French mezzo and a, and a French conductor. And mm -hmm. at one point, I was explaining to the mezzo, I said, the elephant in the room here is that they won't talk about Verter, and she said, c'est quoi, elephant in the room? <laughs> I said, elephant dans la pièce, and it, she went, no, and, and the, the conductor said, uh, it doesn't exist in French, there is no expression that is equivalent to elephant in the room, and I said, do you mean there's no way of saying in French that they won't talk about this huge thing that is obvious to everybody. He said, no, no, because the French are so open and clear. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, somewhere in this audience, there is my sister-in-law who works closely with me over the years, Nina. And Nina said something to me this morning that I grabbed. I thought, ah, that's useful. It really shows a lot. And she said this reminded me of a joke that took me back over 50 years to schoolboy jokes when we loved and laughed over the phrase, when is a door not a door, when it's a jar. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought this is very revealing because if you say this, even in English, as a French person might say it, which is with that feeling of just keeping going through a line, it's so easy not to get the laugh. If one just were to say, when is a door not a door when it's a jar? <laughs> you then realize that there's this very special thing. If you labor it, and when you say, when is a door, with great diction, you'll ruin it as well. <laughs> but if you feel that the essence of it is the comparison of these two words, then you can say it at lightning speed even, or taking your time in a relaxed way, but you have to just make the word door. When is a door not a jar? And there you just see that the whole point of it is this antithesis this between these two, two words. But if one of them, has, when, if the door is not valued, or if jar is not valued, and to me, this is what in all the book we're talking about, which is how a word is not 
just part of a sentence, part of a thought. And that the very finest, I quote there, the French actors, even at great speed, can do what the very, very best virtuoso violinists and pianists do, who are very rare, which is to be able to play it, and singers too, at tremendous speed, but you can feel that they're present to every single detail. Is that antithetical to the English language? Oh, English language, yes, because, I mean, the great thing about it, when the French think thoughts, when in English we begin to speak, as we're doing now, as one begins a sentence, one doesn't quite know what comes next. This is a fascinating thing in the yeah. book. Yes, we, we actually, and that's why, I mean, the old joke about the Englishman is humming and hawing, but it is a natural thing of you're actually finding your way as you speak. And, and the French, you would say, the, the sentence is complete before it's spoken. Oh, yeah, yes. You're taught very early on of, of a thought. That's why I give you these examples of Proverbs. What it is when you have something that you actually know before you start to say what the end is. But here, as we talk, I have no idea how this <laughs> sentence is going to end, and I don't know what yours is going to be. Um, you, you talk about, um, the, there's an essay where you talk about a hunch, mm. uh, which um, resonated very strongly for me. You tell a story about having a hunch about changing uh, your production of Boris Goodenough at yeah. the very last moment, and it's wonderful. It turns out to be just short of a catastrophe and a triumph. Um, the changes you make, but um, tell me what you mean by hunch. Is that the same as instinct? Well, hunch. I grabbed it there because in English you can. You know, I mean, it's really an American word. It's American street talk, isn't it? One doesn't really say, in English, I got a hunch. You'd say that easily in New York. Yeah, I got a hunch about that. But a hunch, and I call this in the book the formless hunch. Even the word hunch, look it up in a dictionary. I'm sure there's a French-English dictionary. It'd be interesting to look up hunch, because I'm sure they have to tie themselves in knots to define, which is what they love doing, to define hunch. But everyone knows that there is something that you sense. I have a hunch. But people are listening to it, are they? <laughs> I have a hunch, Richard, that we're going on too long. <laughs> the hunch. Those, those, that's where it comes from. A hunch, you can only express it with a gesture. It comes from there. Even from there. You, and it's one of the things I think that even Churchill, to win the war, had all the time to just have that hunch that what looked to be a catastrophe, but he could rally everyone, and a sense that we will win in the end, which is a very dangerous and pretentious thing ever to say. To start off in a production, someone says, do you think it's going to be a hit? Of course, one appalled if you say that yourself. But if you have 
I'll put it this way, I don't know if it coincides your experience, but after any production I've done, if it has worked out, that all the friends who had once come to you would say, I know what you should do next. And they come, if you've done one opera, what about, you haven't done La Boheme? And somebody says, yes, but what about Tristan? Mm -hmm. And then Shakespeare, have you done Troilus and Cressida? Why not? And all that. And after we'd done the Mahabharata, you can't imagine how many people for months were coming to me, knocking on the door to persuade me to do their own Icelandic national sagas. sagas, Icelandic sagas, Indian sagas, old German, the Nibelungen, and old Saxon, old Werewolf, mm. all that. And my feeling was there is something that's nothing to do with it, and my feeling is that now, from this mythical world, we must go into something which is part of everyday life. What is everyday life that isn't just journalistic? I thought there's only one thing, which is science. Science is really dominates our world. And so for about six months, I saw scientists, asked them to tell me what they were doing, every sort of scientist and <coughs> chemists, and was forced to recognize that a science cannot be put on the stage. You can use projections and all that, but you can't bring into living, dramatic life science. And to do plays about a scientist, a scientist, even a great scientist, isn't necessarily a very interesting human being. See, the scientist at home quarreling with his wife, so what? I remember, sorry. But, but to go on. After all that, I'd completely come to a stop, I thought, but I know my hunch is that this is the direction we must go, but what? And then Harold Pinter said to me, have you read this? And gave me the book of Oliver Sacks. And from that, I began to read about the science of the brain. And so the science of the brain is about human behavior. And there, at once, if it's about human behavior, you're in the theater, you're in the world of actors, because an actor can bring to life to an audience more than anyone else the reality of someone who can only speak by doing that all the time. That's at once a language that is natural to the theater. And so out of that, bit by bit, we went to see Oliver Sacks, started working with him, and then went to this whole series of plays, starting with The Man Who, which we played here, about the brain. And there, I can say that with all the people offering me the Icelandic sagas, there was this hunch. The French have a good word for it, because they call it a pith. And it's the same thing. Something you just, you can't explain, but you just sense. And I think that that is what can then, if that is there, then you go on and you go through every sort of mistake. You sit there, you think this is getting nowhere, but you have had the hunch that this is going to be the road we have to take. I found this once. I was lost in a forest. And I found that the only way out of this impenetrable forest 
was to try one way, try another, until there's that curious intuition. Now let's try that way, and it proves to be the right one. But the, the, um, the hunch is also useful for knowing when you shouldn't go down one road. And I remember we were talking a few years ago, and I think I'd had a catastrophe, and I said to you, um, I knew the first day of rehearsals, and you said to me, oh, yes, I know that feeling that you have a hunch on the first day of rehearsals. It's not going to work. Yes. And I, uh, we both said, if only one had the courage to say then, let's just abandon it now and save it. No, it is true. Absolutely. I feel exactly like that, but of course this is, this is where the realities of commerce come into it in a, good, in a right way. That there's so many people, contracts have been signed, expectations, one can't give up. So one has to pit, work, trying to fill in the gaps, make patches, but very, I did a production, I remember, where I knew, I'd, worked out the design with a designer, and he brought me a design with a big circular platform. And I think this was for Hamlet. And this circular platform, about that high, was for him the feature of his design. I looked at it, and I had a hunch, said, this isn't going to work. And we worked many times together, and he said, just tell me. I'm ready to change everything if you can explain. Because to me, look, it fits here. It's in there, this is very beautiful, this is balanced. He had every designer reason for it, and I couldn't answer. I just said, no. and so in the end, out of friendship, I said, well, let's try. And then when we came to the first rehearsal, I suddenly knew what it was. But for us to make good relationships in movements, even if we don't do this awful thing of telling people where to go, the movements arise quite naturally if everything naturally puts a di diagonals. In a diagonal, then, I mean, here, we're first forced to talk, both of us largely looking out front. Mm. But if it was in a play, we would have to be in some way or other facing one another and ideally in a little diagonal, and a good set just gives one the ways of being in relationships that zigzag. And when I came to this, rehearsed, tried my best, I couldn't find a way in this circle of people coming in, coming up to it. They were never in a dynamic relation with one another. You know what I mean? I, I know what you mean. Thank you.